Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another year of the Mindful Medical Learner. My name is Jillian. I'm a second-year medical student, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Anna, a third-year medical student at McGill. Hi, I'm Anna. So uh, right now, we know that CARMS is well underway, and many of our colleagues are in the midst of their residency applications, so it can be a stressful time. So to everyone applying, uh, we are sending you our best wishes. We're excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Ashley Buikert, a fourth-year resident in neurology at McGill. Dr. Buikert completed a Bachelor's of Science in Neuroscience and went on to pursue her medical training here at McGill. In addition to acting as the co-chief resident in adult neurology, Dr. Buikert lectures and leads group discussions in the Faculty of Medicine. She has been a member of the residency training program for the past two years, and in the last three years, she's also been involved in the CARM selection process to accept new residents into neurology at McGill. Beyond medicine, Dr. Buikert is a tap, jazz, and hip-hop dancer, and a paint-by-number enthusiast. Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jill and Anna. It's really such a pleasure. So I guess we'll start off with just a little bit of background. So can you tell us a bit about your journey before medical school? What brought you into medicine? I actually didn't know that I wanted to be a doctor growing up. I think many people in my life knew before I did, but I was just a keen learner and I loved school (laughs) and I was interested in science. I was interested in the liberal arts. And so throughout my post-secondary training or education, I tried to get exposure to both. In Quebec, we have a pre-college. And so I did an arts and science program there. And then in my undergrad, graduate degree, I pursued a Bachelor of Science in Neuroscience, mainly because the department was very interdisciplinary. And so by doing neuroscience, I got to do chemistry, I got to do ethics, I got to do computer science and psychology. And I also did a minor in English literature. I just liked looking at how different people could experience the world around them. And everyone in my life had just assumed, it seemed, that I wanted to be a physician from the get-go. But to me, it didn't feel like a very linear path. Until one day I said, okay, well, let me give this a try. Let me see what it's like to actually be in a clinical setting. And I shadowed a transplant nephrologist who is the father of a friend of mine. And I was watching him discuss care with patients of all ages, how to deal with their immunosuppressants and how to monitor their post-transplant life. And I realized that the clinical setting was almost this perfect combination of science and evidence and exciting discoveries, but also just, it's so innately human. And it was this beautiful combination of what I've been trying to do. It felt like uh, since I was a teenager of just combining the arts and the sciences in a really beautiful and interactive way. And so I figured, let me give it a try. I applied after university and the rest is history. (laughs) So I think looking back, it seems like it was the obvious choice and I'm so grateful to have the career that I do and hopefully will and but at the time it it wasn't so obvious so whenever I talk to people who are finishing high school or finishing CJEP and they feel very lost I say just take it one day at a time try to learn the things that matter to you 
and you'll probably end up where you need to be. Wow, that's really beautiful. It sounds mm-hmm. like the doctor who you shadowed really inspired you and showed you a mm-hmm. side of medicine that's really focused on patient care. So Ashley, I know you did an elective in palliative care because we talked about it a bit when I had shadowed you, which by the way, was a fantastic experience. I know at the time it was optional to do an elective in palliative care. So it's something you chose to do, but I understand that now the neurology program includes a rotation in palliative care. Can you tell our listeners a bit about how that program has changed? Sure. So across Canada, all of the residency programs recently have been shifting from uh, a previous curriculum to now a competency-based medical education curriculum, uh, defined rather than by the amount of time that you spend in a program by your competency in achieving professional activities related to the specialty that you're training in. And I'm in the last cohort that is the pre-competency-based medical education of trainees. And in that curriculum for the residency at McGill in neurology, we have a certain number of electives and a certain number of required rotations within neurology, but also related fields. And when I was choosing the electives that I wanted to do, I, of course, chose some electives to help me choose what kind of subspecialty I may want to pursue in the future. But I also really wanted to use the time I had in residency to try to become the most well-rounded neurologist I could be. So that if I left the program, how could I gain experiences that I might not have the chance to do later that would help me be a better neurologist, even if it wasn't directly related to neurology per se. And so one of the things I wanted to do as a part of that was actually a rotation in palliative care and not really on the neurology unit, but at one of our other hospitals in Montreal. There were many reasons that I think I ultimately decided to pursue that elective. One of them, very simply, is when we have patients admitted under neurology at one of our hospitals, at the Montreal Neurological Hospital, we care for patients who can be at the end of life, um, especially with many of our neurodegenerative or neuromuscular disorders. And I wanted to make sure that I knew how to make sure people were comfortable and free of debilitating symptoms when they were towards the end of their life. So from a very practical prescribing medication and interventions perspective, I was interested in the elective. I think the more important reason for me, though, was to get more training in how to discuss emphasizing quality of life and the care that I provide. We're so lucky to be in an age of medicine and an age of neurology where there's so many discoveries and we're able to cure so many different types of disorders. But I really think that as a physician, it's really important to not only focus on curing disease, but caring for the whole person you have in front of you. And that can mean how can you optimize their symptoms, like I said, but also how can you talk about those kinds of things with your patients uh, and their families? How can you talk about situations when you might not have a curative option? And how can you take people from focusing on the amount of time that they have left in life to what they can do with that time and the quality of life they can have in that time they have with their loved ones. Um, And we do a lot of that in neurology because we have a lot of disorders where we don't have curative treatments. Uh, But I thought having exposure to how a different specialist or a different type of physician deals with those conversations about goals 
and life where I thought having those that kind of training would help me be a more well-rounded neurologist when I when I care for people whether or not I have a cure for their disease. Do you find a big part of your everyday interaction with patients is helping them live with the conditions that they have and come to a point of acceptance? I think I sit in a very privileged position to help people navigate uncertainty. And it's actually the thing that made me want to do neurology. When someone comes in with a neurological symptom, either not being able to move or think or speak or feel or see the way they usually can, things that we often take for granted, it affects how they interact with the world around them and it affects their sense of self sometimes in a way that's very different to other symptoms that you may have like chest pain. So I find that when I'm meeting someone in a consultation and I'm going through their whole story and I'm examining them and you know physical exam, really getting into their life experience with these new symptoms, I feel as though there's an opportunity for me to meet them where they are and make them feel as though they're no longer alone in this scary space and that the words I use and the way I interact with them can have a healing effect before I reach for any lab or imaging requisition paper or any prescription pad. And I remember even as a medical student, as a, as a third year medical student starting fresh on my clerkship rotations, I felt the most like a physician I had ever felt just in those interactions before I even was able to review the presentation with my attendings. And to this day, I think meeting people where they are and helping them navigate, not necessarily leading to acceptance immediately, but at least navigating their feelings, their uncertainty, where things are going and where they've been, I get a lot of meaning and, and satisfaction out of that. So to the people who are scared of certain specialties because they feel as though they may not be able to cure everyone, I think you just have to decide what do you need to feel satisfied as the doctor in your daily life? You know, if you need to go in and cut out the disease, that's great. There's very, there's multiple specialties for that. But if you can find meaning in these little moments and that's satisfying to you, then uh, neurology is just waiting. That was such an appealing call to neurology. <laughs> I honestly, in just listening to you talk about how much you derive meaning from it, it makes me want to do neurology. Mm -hmm. In talking sort of about how you've been involved, like during residency and the things you've been interested in, Jill and I have both had experience with you teaching a lecture during neurology in FMD, the Depopia lecture. And I think there's a lot of value to having residents in those teaching uh, in those teaching positions. And I know that the neurology program at McGill is a very like big supporter of teaching. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about that experience. So I'm wondering what else teaching in the neurology program looks like and how your experience has been with it. Thank you for that question because it's one of my favorite things to talk about. I mean, I grew up, like I said earlier, loving school, typical nerd and proud of it. And I think I was heavily influenced by both of my parents who are professors. You know, the school has always been a place where you can discover more about yourself in my mind. 
And even in high school, I would always love to tutor people. I would host little review sessions for my classmates before exams. And I found that anytime I tried to teach something, I would end up learning more about it. I would learn about myself and I would learn about my peers. So I've always found that near peer teaching can be very um, valuable. And in neurology at McGill, even as a medical student, there's so many opportunities to get involved. I think because the leadership really believes similarly. I mean, this is my interpretation. I think also there are so many good role models for teaching in neurology in general. I find it attracts people who are engaged in problem solving and explaining complex ideas and complex concepts to their patients that it translates really well to discussing those concepts with others and, and learners especially. When I started to demonstrate an interest in neurology, I approached our then program director who was also involved in undergraduate medical education in neurology about being more involved and, and doing some small group teaching and doing some anatomy review sessions. And also with one of my classmates, we kind of created an exam review session for the students in, in the second year of their training when we were in our third and fourth year training. So it was just trying to get these little bits and pieces in medical school. And I think that really solidified for me that I can still be an educator and I can still do all this teaching within medicine. I hadn't really realized that before. And then when I was debating earlier in my life about what I wanted to do, I really thought I wanted to be a teacher just like my parents. And then comes this opportunity to do medicine, this thing I love and be an educator. And so now to actually get to your question <laughs> in residency, I think there's many different levels at which you can get involved in education. Of course, you can do teaching. Whenever we're on service and we have the clerkship students rotating with us, there's teaching around every single case and even just role modeling professional behavior and how you interact with your patients. I think there's a lot of hidden teaching that happens there as well. And then we get involved in the preclinical neurology block. We can lead small group sessions, do the anatomy sessions. And it hadn't even occurred to me to ask for a lecture because I thought only real neurologists get to do those. But the, the director of the block, again, just gave, similarly to how you said, Anna must have seen the value of having a near peer teacher, someone a little closer in training, maybe perceived as more approachable and just a model of what you could be just beyond medical school. Then in residency itself, we teach each other all the time. In our program, we give lectures to each other almost every morning. The last part of our academic half day involves resident-led lectures. And then in addition to all this teaching, you can also be involved in leadership. So this is kind of the second place where you can be involved in the residency training committee, which I've been lucky to be involved in since last year. We actually at McGill in the neurology program have a separate committee just for continuous quality improvement in our curriculum. And it's led by residents. So you have an active say in how the curriculum improves year to year. And I think that's really important that we're in, you know, it's, I feel very lucky to be in a program where we always want to be a better version of ourselves than we were the year prior. And so this curriculum committee is called the Curriculum Action Plan Committee or CAP short, and it's half residents and half staff. And we just review, you know, how are we 
attaining all of the objectives laid out by the Royal College to make us excellent physicians? And where are we doing certain teachings and why are we doing it that way? And can we do it in this other mode and can we make it more interactive? And I think then the last part is actually specifically at McGill, you have opportunities to do electives in medical education. You can do research in medical education, but there's also this really amazing elective called Foundations in Medical and Health Sciences Education. And this is where I actually found the difference between teaching content and then deciding how content is taught. And the whole point of the course is to learn how to put together a curriculum from assessing your needs to evaluating your program. And I did that as an elective when I was in my first year of residency and everything clicked into place. I realized how much I wanted this to be a part of my career in the future. And it's something I hope to be involved with uh, once I establish my practice as an attending. So I had the pleasure of being part of your small group. Um, so for the listeners who don't know, a small group is something that's pretty unique at McGill where smaller numbers of students are put together. And we're given cases to discuss and problems to work out. And we're given a leader for each of those groups who is either a professional in the field or a resident who's really interested in the topic. And for all of neurology, my small group was paired with our lovely leader, Ashley, who kind of brought us through or shepherded us through all of neurology. And it was extremely helpful to have someone who remembered what it was like to be learning all of these topics and wasn't so far removed from them. And I think that's a really unique thing that McGill has. So I had a really positive experience with that. And I'd love to hear how that experience was for you being on the other side of it. I think I said this the first small group session, because we had a total of eight sessions and they're each about two hours. So we, we got to know each other, you know, fairly well by the end of the neurology block. But small groups is just one of my favorite things I get to do as a resident. And I think in many ways, one, obviously, I just love talking about neurology. Uh, and the nice part about the small groups is that you get to see people for the first time interact with neurology and initially be maybe a little overwhelmed and confused. And what does this anatomy even mean? But over the course of the weeks, as these concepts of localization and, and treatment kind of click, it's just amazing to see everyone's kind of lights go on. And it's just really gratifying. And the further the, the sessions go, the less I talk, the more everyone else talks. And it's so exciting to, to watch that happen. But I think one of my favorite parts is that every small group has not just you know medical expert oriented questions, but more ethical dilemmas, more professionalism concerns of what does this practice actually look like in real life and how do you navigate your responsibilities to your patients, your responsibilities to society as a whole, to yourself and your own beliefs. And the neurology block at McGill, as you both know, but for the listeners, is one of the last ones before medical students transition to more of a clinical setting. And I think it's such an opportune time for you guys to engage in a bit of formation of your professional identity as future physicians. And I find those discussions always really eye-opening and interesting to listen to. And I always learn something. So the small groups, I think, in, in many ways has been really valuable for me as a resident to be a part of because it's 
been really useful, not only for me to share knowledge, but for me to learn teaching skills, for me to reflect on why I'm teaching things in a certain way or explaining things in a certain way, crystallize core concepts, but also kind of assisting in your professional identity formation, I think has helped me in my professional identity formation as a leader, as a supervisor, and hopefully as an educator as well. I love that so much. I think there's so much juice in your answers and you speak so well, I think about it. And I really hear with what you're saying, the value in it from everyone's perspective, like everyone is winning in, in these situations. I actually had the privilege of co-leading two neuro small groups in this past year with the block leader. And I loved the experience and it must be a, a very different experience, like as an established resident versus as a, as a third year medical student. But I enjoyed the opportunity so much. I think, like you said, a big part of it was the more ethical questions and like professional identity questions as this transition is made into more clinical work. And hearing the answers, I just kind of realized that this work of discovering your professional identity never ends. And that was something that I felt like I gained so much from just a small part in, in this near peer learning. So thank you so much for sharing that. And for also being a part of it, because I know lots of us appreciate it. Another question I had, I, I had no idea that, you know, your parents are both professors and that educating was something that you're, you know, in general, very passionate about. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't teach in neurology or if you did still teach in neurology and there was another topic outside of neurology or medicine that you're passionate about that you'd want to teach, what would it be? I think it's always been biology for me. I think if I wanted to teach something... I like having a concrete material to transfer and mm -hmm. then to layer it with my enthusiasm and my excitement for the material. And I think one of the influencing factors for me has also been my own high school science teachers. You know, I remember the first time I learned about viruses with, and I remember the first time I learned about a neuron. It blew my mind that these things could even happen, that you had a cell that could be chemical and electrical at the same time, and that viruses were essentially just pieces of protein and DNA or RNA, and they could wreak all this havoc on the human body. And I think the combination of just my passion for science and also my experience being so heavily influenced in high school by my own biology teachers, I think it would have to be that. I actually think it's very illustrative of the fact that that biology high school teacher had such an influence on you. And so the influence that you have on us as learners is also immense. I think it's just very telling of that. That's so kind of you to say. It really is the most important and most valuable feedback I get to receive as a participant in medical education. So thank you for saying that. We are huge supporters and we hope that this will keep going for years and years because it has immense value. Kind of going along with this, like we've kind of talked about some of your experiences in medical school and residency outside of all of all of this busy, busy work. We kind of were wondering what your work-life balance looks like and sort of what are the things that you might prioritize like outside of all these roles to balance things out for yourself? I think... The answer to that looks different for everyone. And, and so I'm really glad you asked it. But I think it's also even changed for me over the years. 
in medical school, as the demands on your time and the, and your responsibilities increase, I just kept on trying to maintain a checklist of things that I had to do. And then I had achieved wellness and I had achieved work-life balance. And if I did yoga a certain number of times a week, then I was well and everything was going to be fine. But I found over time that sometimes that ended up stressing me out even more than it did help me. And so now what I would say is I don't really think of it as necessarily the phrase work-life balance. I think it's a very useful phrase because it points to this huge discussion that people are engaging with more and more about making sure that you're a human as well as being a physician. <laughs> and so what I like to conceive of it of, at least in my mind, is actually kind of like a pie and that there's different roles that I have in my life. I have being a resident, I have being a teacher, I have being a partner, I have my family, my friends, and then I have a pie slice just for my relationship with me. <laughs> and I think day to day or week to week, the size of each pie slice can change. There's times when you need to give more time to work or when you need to give more time to your relationships or to a certain project. The reason I like this idea of a pie is because they're all on the same plane and you can move things around. Whereas when I think of the phrase work-life balance and I take it really, really literally, it feels as though there's work on one side, there's life on the other, they're two separate things and they're either gonna be the same or they're gonna be off kilter. And I just think that for me was very limiting and sometimes made it worse. So I like the idea of pies. And when I think of it that way, then there's many things that can contribute to making me feel well. Sometimes the thing that makes me feel well is having a really great interaction with a person at work or one of my patients. Believe it or not, participating in small groups is really part of my wellness because I obtain so much happiness from it. And it's a nice change of pace <laughs> from what can sometimes be a very busy resident life and clinical responsibilities. Um, and sometimes my wellness is doing my paint by numbers without anyone else around, listening to a podcast <laughs> and spending a couple of hours just coloring in little circles and dots. And I think other things that have worked for me over time is when I've had less time to go to dance classes, especially in the pandemic, finding exercise activities that make me feel good in my body, I find is the best stress reliever. Sometimes when things are just really overwhelming, I like to journal it out. I kind of stream of consciousness, empty my brain onto a piece of paper and with that, I find I can relieve a lot of my stress. And sometimes it's trying a new recipe to bake. I really want to make pastéis de nata because it's a, like a rising bread and many layers and all these things. But recently I tried cinnamon rolls and that was, you know, an extra treat because then you get to eat it. What a <laughs> delicious way of describing work-life balance. I think it's really important that you've found the way that works for you and that you've taken off the pressure and the expectations of having to achieve this ideal of being a human and being balanced in your life. I think that adds a lot of pressure, especially as a resident or even as a medical student. 
when your time is taken up by other things, it can be hard to feel like you're still yourself and that you're making time for all the things that matter. And I really love how you described it as pie because every slice is equally delicious, no matter how big or small. The one thing I would add to my answer is that I think it is important to really schedule the time that you need for yourself, like you do your other responsibilities. And that's why I put the relationship with yourself as an own slice, because it needs to take up the space. And I find that is really helpful when you treat it like an appointment with you. to fill your own tank when you're using so much of your energy to help others and be there for others and meet your responsibilities and work on projects that matter to you. You need that time, which is our most valuable and precious resource really carved out and protected from anything else. I agree. I think the way of looking at it as a pie and it's dynamic, it can change day to day, hour to hour. I think that's a really powerful way to look at it. And I also think like what you said about setting aside time for yourself I think is so crucial otherwise if it's an assumption that you're making that oh well whenever there's a hole here or a hole there in my schedule that'll be the time for me but it's so easy for those things to then be engulfed by other responsibilities and it is really important to set aside that time and and really have it be protected like when we say work-life balance like you said it creates such a dichotomy and very opposing things and most of the time they aren't and I think a lot of us especially in medicine have a personal identity with our careers Mm -hmm. and I think when we put them against each other it's almost harder to find balance so 100% and the pie is your life it's not work on one side and life on the other side work is a part of your life but it's not the whole pie there's all these other slices And I think going along with that, we kind of had a little bit of of a discussion before the podcast around the CARS process. And and we know that when it was you, that you couples matched with your partner. And Mm -hmm. of course, CARMS is an interesting emotional time for everyone. And I think it's a unique experience for everyone. I guess I'm wondering if there's anything in specific during that process and the couples matching process Mm -hmm. that maybe was particularly challenging that you struggled with and how you coped with it. Mm-hmm. Well, many layers to this question, but I thank <laughs> yes. you for asking it. So one of the things that I found really challenging about the CARMS process, uh, I mean, it's this incredible, almost year-long marathon exercise in maintaining your mental health and a pressure cooker of an application process. And one of the things I found challenging about that in particular was that everyone in your cohort is anxious about it at once and everyone will manifest that anxiety in different ways Uh, some people will turn inwards but many people I find can reflect that outwards and turn that into uh, you have to do this or else you're not going to be successful you know you have to have these things on your CV, you have to have done this experience, you have to have done your electives in this way or else everything is over. And it can be very dramatic. (laughs) And I found it hard to initially manage dealing with what other people might be saying to me or yelling at me as a reflection of their own anxiety until I realized that most often it was a reflection of their own anxiety. And why is it that this other person who's in the same level as I am, who's been to the same years of medical school as I have, what privileged information do they have that must absolutely be the truth about how you have to do this? And then I really just committed to 
everybody's journey is their own journey and you just have to do what is right for you. You have to apply to the programs that are right for you and rank based on what you value. And we're lucky in Canada that residency programs are accredited. You're likely gonna get excellent training in many different places. And it's all about just finding the place that's the best fit for you. And once I embraced the do this in a way that works for me mentality, I find a lot of the anxiety was stripped away. And so if people did come to me with those thoughts of you have to do this, you have to do that, or else it's going to be a disaster, I would be like, I hope that works for you. And you just let it, you know, slide off your shoulder. Just don't let it stick. And I think in that process, it was really valuable for me to have smaller number of people who I would really discuss all of my inner thoughts and anxieties and turmoils with. And for me, it ended up being my partner. And that kind of brings me to the second phase of your question, I guess, was how did I navigate a couples matching? I'll start by saying I met my partner in first year of medical school. I started medical school saying I'm going to live my best single doctor lady life and be an independent woman. And I have no interest in dating anyone in medicine. And I have no interest in dating anyone in my class above all. And then, of course, once you say that, that's when you meet the person in your class in medicine. <laughs> um, and we, we went through medical school, both trying to figure out what we wanted to do. I ultimately ended up matching to neurology and he matched to pediatrics, uh, which I would say are kind of mid-competitive level programs, at least for my year or our year. <laughs> and we weren't sure we were going to couples match until we were actually going through the interview process. And that's kind of the nice part about the process is you don't have to declare your couples matching until you rank. You can apply completely individually and the coupling happens as a part of your rank list. So technically no one in the process should have any knowledge because it's not even in the portal yet until the very last minute. And so I think my, my biggest advice to anyone out there who's in a couple in medical school and planning for CARMS, the first step is really to have open and honest discussions with your partner about what each of you want individually and what each of you want together. And that's not just about programs and cities and residency. You have to have some pretty big life discussions as well. <laughs> and I think that's kind of a good starting point. We ended up both doing electives fairly broadly. This was back in a time where you could do electives at outside schools. I hear that may be coming back. So this was in a time when you could do electives broadly, and we did. We went essentially coast to coast to get as much exposure to the discipline that we were interested in as possible and see what neurology and pediatrics or what our specialties of interest were like elsewhere outside of our home school. And we ended up applying very broadly as well. And we were lucky enough to interview fairly broadly. And then we agreed, the way it worked for us is that we agreed to go into the interview process as if we were you know, single as a Pringle, going to rank based on our own interests and our own desires. And so we went to interviews, we met with programs, and then we went on a vacation together right after. And we 
decided to each make our own rank list. What would it look like if we were applying on our own? And that kind of helped us crystallize what our individual desires were. And it turned out that some of our top programs we had in common, but some of our top programs were also programs that the other person hadn't received an interview offer for. So then, you know, this is where all those important relationship life discussions come into play. And we were in our late 20s at the time, and we had been in training for a very long time and had decided that for us, we weren't necessarily willing to sacrifice those top choices for the duration of our training, and that we would, if we ended up at different places, be willing to try long distance. But for our mid to lower choice programs, we would be willing to move around for each other and try to be closer to each other. And so the way we actually ended up ranking was that if we were able to get into any of our top three choices or top few choices, then we would. But otherwise, if either of us was more on the West Coast, that would prioritize the other person's West Coast options and the same for the East Coast. And I, I've never met any other couple who did it this way uh, because I think the classic way people imagine couples matching is that you're at the same place no matter what, but it's very flexible. You just have to decide what works for you. And I remember when we went to our academic advisor asking her if this made sense, if we were understanding the algorithm in the correct way, she said, well, you're essentially not really couples matching like other people do. It's really just the middle of your list onward uh, that you're coupling up. And we said, well, that's what works for us. <laughs> and we ended up being very lucky and are in the same city, the same school. And it's been very helpful in ways that we didn't, I think, foresee with the pandemic hitting when we were in mm -hmm. our first year of residency, having each other around was very valuable. But that's how we couples matched. And so I think to summarize my very long-winded answer, it would be about having honest discussions with yourself and your partner and figuring out how to make the system work for what you value as a couple and as individuals. I think it's also really interesting saying that this isn't how typically couples matches would go. It's really good food for thought for you to sort of open up and just say, there's a lot of other ways to do this. And I think it sounds like what's most important is finding the way that works for both of you. And it doesn't need to be a set way. And I think that also ties in what you were saying earlier about as a single person, having others in your class tell you or share their opinions of how it needs to be done for you to match into this program and for you to decide that there is no one way. There's the way that works for me. And ultimately, if that doesn't get me where I want to be, at least I did what was true to myself. And I think that's the most important thing, whether alone or, or with a partner. So I really like that message. I think that in, in general, too, is that sometimes the most important questions are the ones you don't think to ask, which is like, what do I actually want? And those can get a little existential, a little too quickly for my liking. But I think anytime you're going through an application process like this or making big decisions in life, you know, choice of specialty, choice of school, choice of residency, where you live, partner, all these things, it really is about looking inwards first and having that honest discussion with yourself. And if you're in a couple, then having that honest discussion with your couple too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of <laughs> vulnerability in the process. Mm-hmm. 
do you feel like going through that process together and having all of those really big existential conversations ultimately made your relationship stronger? I think for us it did. I think by the time we were in the CARMS process, we had been dating about three and a half years. We had been through some trials and tribulations already and have been through many more since, you know, it, it had being in a relationship and in residency. But I think it forced us to make explicit a lot of our inner desires and goals, um, which was valuable for us as individuals and also in, in how we communicate those to each other. Communication is so key in every relationship in your life, but especially with your partner. And it kind of became a catalyst for a lot of discussions that were very valuable for us to both under know um, key pieces of information or value systems about each other. I just want to go back to a minute to what you had said and, and what Anna had reiterated about your approach to other people's opinions of CARMS and other people's expectations or ideals of how it's supposed to go. That really resonated with me, how you approached it, how you didn't let their expectations change yours. You kind of held them for a minute, addressed them and let them go. It was incredibly mindful. And it can be very hard in the moment because you're in the same anxiety that they're in saying all these things. And and you still want to be supportive of your colleagues as they're trying to say what they're doing to make the system work for them. And but you also don't want it to come at a cost to your own process. And it's easy to say now, but I can tell you at the time, it did not feel very intuitive, at least initially. But I find it was kind of like an, a muscle that I just needed to exercise a little. And then it felt very natural. And they would tell me, well, I did this and I, I published here and you have to do that to do this. And I'd say, you know, good luck. I really hope that works out and you know that you get what the program you want and the place that you want. I did not publish there. <laughs> <laughs> but lo and behold, you ended up, you know, in a program that you love, teaching neurology, studying neurology, helping patients. So there is a happy ending, which is really absolutely wonderful. Medicine is such a diverse field. We need all kinds of people with all kinds of goals. And so it makes sense that we have different paths to get to where we want to go. And so rather than feeling stressed that you're not fitting this perceived fabricated mold of what you're supposed to do celebrate the fact that you offer something different okay and then that leads us into our final question so i once heard that you know a specialty is right for you if you get along with the people in it what do you think about that i've heard that as well and i've heard that even not only as a specialty but as advice when you're ranking programs where you're going to join or for residency, for fellowship, or even departments that you're going to join. And I think in my own experience, it's been a valuable piece of advice. The one caveat I would say, though, is that there's many different types of people everywhere. So if you do one elective as a student somewhere, and you just don't click with the people that you're working with, which can happen because we all have different personalities. It might be because the ethos of that department is a certain way or the ethos of that specialty is a certain way or just the people you met at that one place. So I wouldn't necessarily rule out a specialty because of one negative experience. But I think if you go into 
several rotations or several weeks or different teams and you encounter people who value similar things in what they do in their daily life and how they approach their work and who laugh at the same jokes as you do, who like to try the similar types of things that you do. I think that can be a really valuable hint that you could be happy working with them. I think the people I've worked with have had a huge impact on what I've learned, how I have evolved as a professional, but also just how I enjoy going to work every day. And it's one of those intangible things that is so important because the work we do can be so difficult and demanding. And I think you need to be around people who help fill your tank. And if you have people who like the same types of subject matter as you do, maybe that's a hint that a specialty or a particular type of practice would work for you. I don't think it's the only thing you should consider. <laughs> and I don't think one bad encounter should turn you away, but I think it can be something to keep in mind when you're trying to decide between fields, which I did for a long time as well. Is there anything else you wanna say for some of our listeners? I would say the most powerful tool you have is getting to know yourself better. And to anyone who's going through CARMS right now, I know it sounds like very easy advice, but just be yourself. Because if you try to perform what you think other people want from you and it's successful or it's not successful, you'll never know if you got there because it was for you or because of what you were performing. People just want to be able to choose their colleagues. So be yourself. And I found when I did that, it, even when it was very stressful and nerve wracking, it was the only way I could sleep at night. I would know if I didn't get into a program, it's because it really wasn't the right fit and maybe it was for the best. And if I did, it was because I was. So be kind to yourself, kind to your colleagues and uh, just try to enjoy the process because it really is a unique experience. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've imparted so much wisdom on us today and it was so lovely to get to talk to you about education and neuroscience and CARMS and all of these really wonderful but difficult topics. So thank you for sharing and thank you for being here with us today. Your questions were also thoughtful and thank you to both of you. It's been such an honor to be invited to your podcast. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.